0: you're listening to post radio with randall and shelby the heart of the culture
1: what's going on everybody this is randall barnes the founder of HBCU post and the host of post radio in the building for a very special broadcast that we're doing live on a sunday we're doing it live on a sunday we had to get it in on the weekend because this is super important this is a gubernatorial candidate that is an HBCU alum from Virginia State University, Miss Jennifer Carroll Foy. She currently serves as a delegate in Virginia, and she's trying to go to be the first black woman governor in uh, the United States of America. Uh, Stacey Abrams pushed forward in 2018, and unfortunately, because of a lot of, I said on the live, because on live on HBCU Pulse right now, a lot of chicanery, a lot of trickery, a lot of foolishness, we weren't able to get to where we needed to go as far as with uh, Stacey Abrams, but we got some stuff cooking for Ms. Foy to see what we can do to support her because we have to make sure that we support all the candidates that are from HBCUs that are advocating for our issues and that have a real plan in place to enact change because with COVID relief and also with how the COVID crisis was handled, we see how important gubernatorial races are and how important governors that operate in our interest are. So we're going to talk about all of that, but the main event is going to be Miss Jennifer Carroll Foy is going to be coming to speak. And we're going to be bringing on Yanaya Campbell, who goes to VSU. She's a part of the Student Government Association. And we're also bringing on Tierra Thomas, who goes to Tennessee State University. So this is going to be great, really amazing, man. So let's go on and bring them on here on Pulse Radio. From the shade room to your news feed, we brag
0: different. You're locked into AHBCU Post,
2: now trending worldwide. Hey, Ms. Four,
1: how you doing today? Hey, I'm Hi. doing well. I am blessed and highly favored. How you doing?
2: Amazing,
1: <laughs> amazing. We are great. First and foremost, thank you for coming on. Um just congratulations to you for everything that you're doing and running in this gubernatorial race. So just shout out to you. Hats off to you. You're really advancing. Just HBCU politics and giving a lot of people a lot of hope. So thank you so much for this. So first and foremost, this is Pulse Radio for everybody that's tuning in. Uh, We have a few minutes of Ms. Foy's time, and she vies to be the governor of Virginia. So I have here uh, Aniyah Campbell as well as Tierra Thomas. They are two political minds from HBCU. So what I'm going to do, all right, is I see all this black woman excellence, this black girl magic, I'm just gonna gonna drive the car tonight, all right? And I'm gonna let them talk to you and let them steer the interview, so we can make it happen. So, Yanaya, going to start us off because we want to know a little bit about your background at your HBCU. So, Yanaya, going to start us off.
0: Good evening, everyone. I am Yanaya Campbell. I certainly cur- serve as the student correspondent here at HBCU Pulse. I'm also a student at Virginia State University, where I currently serve in the Student Government Association as the VP of Research and Economic Development. Thank you so much for your time this afternoon, Delegate Jennifer carroll So my first question for you today is, being a BSU student, I know we are huge in pride and being true to our orange and blue, but I'm sure a lot has changed since you went to school. So my question to you is, how was your experience at BSU, and why did you choose to get your master's there?
2: Yeah, so thank you all for having me. I really appreciate it, and I appreciate that question. So first, I want to say, say, "Hell, state," and um, listen. Being born and raised right there in Petersburg, Virginia, Virginia State University was always a staple in my community. And there were so many people um, who would come to Petersburg because they went to Virginia State and decided to plant roots there. And so I've always heard about the legacy that Virginia State has. I've known so many uh, people who have friends and family who went there and have nothing but glowing things to say. You know, now my parents, actually, my mom went to Virginia State University as well. And she has some stories about when there was no air conditioning, um, <laughs> struggle was real. Um, and so, you know, back to those times, but we're building up, we're scaling up and scaling out. And I am impressed by all the uh, different uh, developments we've been making at the, at, on campus. And so I can tell you, my experience was fantastic. The people, were just good and Southern, right? Just, you know, friendly and nice. And everyone was just so opening and, you know, and welcoming. And I just had a great time. Everyone was awesome, except when I get those parking tickets because there's nowhere to park. But yeah, so we had this with my dad. But besides that, you know, I have to say it was absolutely amazing.
0: That is fantastic. I'm so happy to hear that. So for twenty twenty, I know it was an amazing year for HBCUs, especially within politics, with uh, the recent uprising and funding, social media exposure. So my question to you is: for your children, can you see them? Encu- can you see yourself encouraging them to attend HBCUs in the future?
2: Absolutely. So not only did I graduate from Virginia State University with my master's, but then I taught there as well. And I know firsthand the black excellence that Virginia State University produces and many of our HBCUs in Virginia. I mean, whether you're talking about engineering or teaching or, you know, going into law, no matter what it is. I mean, it's the bond uh, that, you know, you can't break. It's the friendships that are lifelong. Um, And so that's what you you know, really want to be around like-minded people who are trying to excel in their professions, but you're trying to build relationships with people that you'll be able to honor for a lifetime. So I loved everything about it. And I would definitely encourage my kids to go to an HBCU.
0: That is fantastic. A a while back, a few weeks back, I had the pleasure of being the timekeeper at your amazing debate. And I know you spoke a lot of being raised in Petersburg, and we spoke on Virginia State University being centered in Petersburg. So I was wondering, as a Trojan, did you have any specific plans for support and resources towards your Trojan
2: family? Absolutely. So I've spoken with the presidents of our HBCUs, and I have my marching orders. They are very uh, crystal clear about the needs that our HBCUs have. And so as governor, I'm proud to say that I will ensure that our HBCUs are research and development universities so we can draw down those federal funds. And the next best great idea happens at an HBCU. So I think that is exceptionally important. Um, also, I've been made aware of the gap. That a lot of our students have where they're dropping out of school with debt and no degree because the cost of tuition room and board books far exceeds the amount of loans and grants that our students are now eligible for and so they're unable to meet that need and that gap and so they have no other alternative but to drop out so making sure to increase financial aid here in virginia is my top priority and then set aside separate funds for capital improvement I know at Norfolk State University, we there is a, a science building that is in dire need of attention. And we have to fund our HBCUs, you know, as they should be and give them the money that they need to excel. So I'm excited to do that. And I'm also excited to say that as a state legislator in the House of Delegates, working with the Virginia Legislative Black Caucus, we were able to actually get one of the biggest uh, awards to our HBCUs in recent history in the last uh, budget last year. So I'm excited about that, even during a health and economic crisis, Uh, because when you have several people in our Virginia Legislative Black Caucuses who themselves have graduated from HBCUs, you know, we're always going to take care of our own
0: absolutely thank you so much so my final question for you is when you do win you'll be the first black woman and hbcu grad to become governor so is there any advice that you can give to any young black woman aspiring to get into politics on this live tonight or any encouraging words that you can give them to keep going
2: absolutely so i always tell any you know woman and woman of color who's thinking about running for office to just do it your time talent is needed in the political sphere. You know, in the words of former Supreme Court Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, you know, women need to be where all the decisions are being made. And in the famous words of my auntie, uh, she say, make it plain. If you want something done right and done once, have a woman do it. So when I say that there are opportunities that's out there for us, when we run, we win, but you have to do the brave thing of putting your name on a ballot, finding a mentor who will help you hit the ground running, um, and then just go for it, because there'll never be a perfect time, you know, and these systems and structures aren't built for us, and it's not lost on me, you know, that even now, during this campaign, people will try to talk about inevitability, right, and they assume that a person who's already held positions of power will inevitably hold them again. And I know that when people tune in, they see me, a woman with black skin and ambitious ideas, trying to be the governor of the former capital of the Confederacy. But I want to be very clear that it was inevitable for a certain type of person to be president until Barack Obama and Shirley Chisholm raised their hands. It was inevitable for only men to go into space until Sally Ride got on that rocket ship. So inevitability only happens and exists if we allow it. That's why we need more women and especially black women to run for office, because when we run, we win.
1: Hey, Thank I, you for that
0: amazing answer.
1: I gotta say this. I love right. black politicians because you always find a way to bring in mama, grandpa, auntie. <laughs> That's why I love it some black politicians, man. Like I, I, I feel I, I feel represented right now, okay? Like because I, I know what my parents be telling me. So we're gonna toss to Tierra. So Tierra has, you know, just some questions about you know, just your, your platform and also, you know, the power that the governor has that, you know, we've seen across Georgia and in, in other states and places. So Tierra, go ahead.
3: Hello, I am Sierra Thomas. I'm a rising senior political science major at the Tennessee State University. Where I also serve as our student trustee on our board of trustees. And you speak a lot about representation. And I think in this climate that we're in, we're starting to see more black women doing what we never thought they could do. We're watching history with Vice President Kamala Harris. We witnessed history with Stacey Abrams bringing Georgia to become a blue state. And now we're watching you run as a um, Black woman candidate for the governor of Virginia. Like you said, that was the capital of the Confederacy. And I think that is something that's beyond the Black girl's wildest dreams. And so I just want to know, in reading your agenda, I was looking at how you wanted to depolarize your um, your legis- your legislative um, branch of your, your state. And so I just want to know, and while we're in the climate where our political parties are the most polarized post-Trump, what do you plan to implement to make sure that that cohesiveness cohesiveness happens between the Democratic Party and the Republican Party in order for your agenda to be fully carried out?
2: Yeah, thank you for that question. So I can tell you that I was able to get Medicaid expansion passed, um, even though I was in a Republican-controlled General Assembly. I was able to pass the expansion of career and technical education, help veterans open small businesses, uh, help foster children um, get adopted by changing our policies here in the Commonwealth because I was a foster mom for almost a decade and saw a lot of opportunities there. So we can get things done um, in a bipartisan fashion it's just we have to also make sure that we have people who are principled in positions of power who won't um, negotiate our values. And that's what's paramount to me. And so I will always fight for working families. I will always fight to uplift women. I will always fight to increase wages so people can work one job and put food on the table. I'm going to Do my best to end child poverty because I think that it is immoral, it is unjust, and it is violent. And have more affordable housing because that determines your life expectancy, your opportunities, the type of education your child gets. So I know that there have been so many issues that we have here in Virginia, for example, but politicians of the past have just nibbled around the edges or put Band-Aids on our problems, getting us from one crisis to the next. So that's why this election is so important. And that's why this campaign is so real, um, because people see themselves in me and my struggle, you know, making it from, you know, one of the poorest communities in all of Virginia where politicians left us behind, but we picked ourselves back up. But there's so many other communities just like my hometown in Petersburg um, that are still, you know, looking for someone to fight for them. So I, I know that we can get things done, in a bipartisan fashion, uh, but doing it in a way that never negotiates our values and always put working families first.
3: Yes, ma'am. And you spoke on something that's really important, which is representation matters. I think that is the key to a lot of my peers participating in the elections in general, is to see someone who looks like us, who supports our needs and our values. Um, so tell me with representation, there also is an expectation amongst Black people to where we want our leaders who look like us to support things that matter the most to us. And sometimes those needs are unique to those of other races. So is there something on your agenda that will specifically speak to the Black community and the Black community only?
2: Yeah, so a lot of my policies are were created with the Black community at the forefront of my mind. I bring to bear my lived experiences as a Black woman, married to a 6'4 Black man with dreads down his back, having two Black children, being the first public defender who represents Black, brown, and poor Virginians, helping them navigate a broken criminal justice system. You know, actually being a community organizer and a foster mom of Black children who have been abused, neglected, and left behind. You know, everything that I do, the moves that I make, who I am, is informed by you know, my life experiences, and that is as a Black woman navigating through, you know, today, which in in and of itself is difficult, as everyone here truly knows. So I bring all of these lived experiences to bear in the colors the lens that I see things through, which is a lens of true equity. You know, fairness, justice, equality is my North Star. So that's how I've drafted My policies. If you go on my website at jennifercarolfoy.com, you will see how I'm going to tackle affordable housing, but do it in a way that's going to desegregate our communities by focusing on upzoning and inclusionary zoning. Where that means that developers, you can build, but only if you set aside a certain amount of units for uh, low and moderate income Virginians. You want to build in these other communities, then you have to take these single family residences and also have apartment buildings. Duplexes and townhomes, so people of different social economic statuses can live together, because that's how we're going to desegregate our community and therefore our schools. That's how we're going to decarbonize our environment by getting more cars off the road. We're going to increase people's quality of life because now they can afford to live where they work. So, those are the things that I am doing and the policies that I have. So, it may seem that it is race neutral, but it has the impact and the effect of making us a more inclusive and diverse society and desegregating our schools and in our communities. So it's just the fact that many people may need to say they have the Black plan, but I am the Black woman who is putting forth the plans that's going to uplift all of our communities. So
3: given that you are running off of these platforms, what makes you different? We know that you're the Black woman candidate. We know that you're HBCU grad. But as a candidate and as a politician, what makes you different from everyone else that you're running against? And what is your why for supporting and um,
2: preparing to serve the state of Virginia? Yeah, thank you for that question. I'm running because the wealthy and well-connected have had a lot of representation in Richmond. And now it's our turn. Now it's our time. Virginians are hungry for change. They want a, a a representative who understands the struggles that they face, someone who will stand shoulder to shoulder with them and add special interests. Because I have been unable to afford the high cost of healthcare and have worked minimum wage jobs, living paycheck to paycheck. And that matters because I can identify with the struggles that Virginians are facing. I don't have to empathize because I understand. And I will move with a sense of urgency to get things done. So even though I haven't been in Richmond that long, I've been there long enough to know that it's not working, that special interests still have a stronghold, stifling progress, and so many politicians are out of touch with the people. So in order to have and effectuate real change, we have to do something different and elect a new leader with a clear vision and bold ideas to move Virginia forward. That's why I've put forth my plans that are bold and transformational to address everything from affordable housing to making sure more people have access to healthcare, uh, desegregating our schools, Paying all teachers a base salary of $60,000 a year while fully funding education and treating climate change as an existential crisis that it is, and it's a climate emergency. So these are the things that I'm willing to do that politicians of the past, who's contributed to a broken status quo that's left so many Virginians behind, have not. So while almost everyone who's running for governor has legislative successes, I have the lived experience. And that's what means something. And that's what matters, especially to Virginians today, who's had a lot to vote against and who's ready and excited to have someone to vote for.
3: I love that. So in my last question, as an HBCU graduate, um, you have an HBCU band to also support, which I am a member of the aristocratic bands at the Tennessee State University. So given the opportunity, um, when you do win, and that's what we're claiming for you, will you have? your alma mater's band supporting you at your inauguration
2: oh my gosh absolutely i wouldn't have it any other way
1: <laughs> i love it
2: absolutely.
1: Yeah. thank you hey i listen i love it like man like just so many amazing hbcu bands and perform everywhere inaugurations everywhere so we need you definitely to keep that tradition alive because you, you're going viral and everybody sees what you're doing. You need to give it back to the bands because the bands re- really give it up. So I want to ask you this um, as we close out the interview. So what we're seeing a lot in the world is a lot of polarization when it comes to politics. And we see a lot of really just like people believing that politics doesn't work. So how important is it not just to be a black woman in politics, but also just working in the political field in general when we see Fake news about oh the election was rigged oh I really won like how do you feel you know that the election is important in the, not not less but politics but politics in general is important in this day and age.
2: Politics, politics right now is especially important and it's um it is sad to me when people say things like oh well I don't do politics um, well politics aren't something that you necessarily do it is so when you hit that pothole on that road that's politics. When you couldn't afford to stay in school, that was politics. When you're paying more in taxes, that's politics. Everything around you, everything that's happening, is political. And what that means is that the people that you vote to put in positions of power are dictating the laws that you have to buy, by and to follow. Whether you pay more taxes or less, whether or not you know you get a tax refund or you don't, you know whether or not you live in a food desert, the type of schools your children attend. The type of job that you have, everything revolves around, you know, people making decisions. And so that's why our decision is so important about who we elect to be our voice, making the rules and making the laws. Because, for example, for me, I see so many race neutral policies that are being put in place. But we can't have race neutral policies when, you know, Jim Crow was very intentional mass incarceration was an intentional policy decision made. So was redlining and land theft and wage theft. So we have to have intentional anti-racist policies that's going to truly combat, you know, and beat back all of what we've been through for so long and had to endure to cause the inequities in all of our systems, in healthcare, education, our environment, and the economy. So those inequities have to be intentionally rooted out to ensure that all of our communities have an opportunity to not just survive, but to actually thrive. And that's why I'm so excited about this campaign. That's why I'm so excited to ask all of you who can vote in Virginia to please vote for Jennifer Carroll Foy on June 8th.
1: I love it. And one of the things I really love that I'm hearing is that a lot of what you're fighting for and a lot of what the policies are centered around is based off your experience. you spoke about it earlier. It's based around your experience of being a black woman that lives in Virginia. But I want to ask you about this because I'm, I'm a media guy. You know, we're on HBCU Post, Instagram Live right now. And I think you're you're doing an amazing job of your social media strategy because I, I want to say we posted the tweet twice where you said it's been 245 years and America has never had a black woman as governor of any state. Raise your hand if you're ready to change that. And a lot of folks were raising their hand in the comments when we initially posted that and even today. So what made you make that tweet and did you expect for it to go as far as it did?
2: Oh, absolutely. I was hoping that it did, because sometimes you have to raise awareness. You have to remind people what's at stake. What's going to happen in uh, 45—I'm sorry, 48 hours means something, and it it matters. It's not only to have a historic moment, but it's to change the trajectory of an entire Commonwealth of Virginia, uh, where we need to preserve our majority. We need to keep up with our progressive gains. You know, it's a life-or-death situation for many people out there, um, and so this election matters. And representation matters as well. It's hard to be what you can't see. And so many little girls have never seen a Black woman lead this this country, and they've never seen a Black woman lead any state in this nation unless you go outside of our country to see where Black women are making it happen. And so why can't we do it here? We can, and we will, because, again, now is our time, and now is our turn.
1: I love it. So I'm here in Georgia right now, and I voted— uh, for Stacey Abrams in 2018. And I voted for John Ossoff, Both for Rafael Juana. I feel so involved, okay? I don't want to say in Georgia, we're making it happen. So what I want to ask is this. So we saw in 2018 that Brian Kemp, who's the governor of Georgia, he still stayed in his capacity as the secretary of state. And that messed up a lot of black folks voting and a lot of just folks in general for making things happen within Georgia. And we see so much trickery that's going on as far as in voting laws and also just opposition to getting different voting acts passed in the Congress and the Senate. So as far as with your campaign, are you planning for that? Is there a game plan for that to fight against that?
2: So we don't have the unique situation that happened in Georgia where you had uh, the player actually acting as an umpire at the same time, uh, putting his finger on the scale and then knocking the scale over and making sure that he was uh, the winner. Um, but here, what we did have was gerrymandering at its best. And so the Republicans had gerrymandered some districts with surgical precision to the point where the courts ruled that the maps had to be had to be redrawn because we had maps making terminations uh, about who the next electeds were and not voters. So we do now have a, you know, different way that our maps are going to be drawn by a commission, a redistricting commission. But we still have an issue of voter exhaustion because we have elections every single year here in Virginia. And 2020 took everyone through it. It was exhausting. It was hard fought. And it was well won. And thank you to everyone who did everything in Georgia to make it happen. But I can tell you that voter exhaustion is real. Donor exhaustion is real. So people are just now tuning in to this Virginia race, uh, believe it or not. But it's right on time because we have the messaging, the mobilization. We have the wind to our back. And people are excited about what's going to happen on June 8th.
1: Amazing. So one thing also for me as we close out this interview Uh is that I'm real big on media. Like for me, I graduated from Fort Valley State University with the media studies degree, and I really study the media in real life. And one thing I see is that oftentimes a lot of diverse voices aren't given a platform until they get to a certain point within their campaign or within their, their political activism. So do you think that the media has given you a fair shake? And when I say the media, I mean the corporate media, you know, like you have, of course, your local affiliates. But even, you know, CNN, you know, and different national affiliates, radio shows, radio stations. Like, do you think that you've been given a fair shake and a fair representation from the media?
2: So I say that, you know, I try to be thoughtful about it and say, well, you know, we've had a real busy and crazy 2020 and a real crazy 2021 as well. And so while I would have appreciated, um, you know, more elevation of the issues here in Virginia, the fact that we do have this historic race, we're on the cusp of, you know, having, you know, a working mom representing working families as a lead executive. Um, I have to say that sometimes you do have some media who falls into the inevitability realm that I was just speaking of a little while ago. Um, They want to believe that the person who's been elected will inevitably be elected again. But we know that the polls have gotten it wrong so many times. I got off that polar coaster a long time ago because you cannot measure the energy and excitement that's on the ground that people are seeing and feeling, especially with people just tuning into the election. But I'm confident that the right thing will happen on you know June 8th. And we're going to show this Commonwealth, this country and the world something in just a few hours.
1: I love it. So one last question, because I, I asked everybody this to hop some polls because, you know, we built such an infrastructure here and I just appreciate you for supporting it, you know, and just you and your team just seeing us as a possible political force and also that that can help you get your message out. So what I saw in 2018, because I got a chance to interview Stacey Abrams at that point, uh, is that I saw her turn into a political star. Um, and I see social media really turning into a front where we really can support politicians We really can support activists in the community. And I want HBCU Pulse and Pulse, our Pulse media outlets to become that. So what can we do, even if I'm in Georgia, even if Tierra's in Tennessee, what can we do to support you and your candidacy?
2: Yes, you can go to JenniferCarolFoy.com, um and you can throw some money at me because I will catch it and I will use it. And I would, you know, appreciate it. Um, You can also sign up because we need your time and your talents to ensure that we remind everyone uh, that the elections on June 8th, polls open at 6 a.m., close at 7 p.m., and that is only one person deserving and who should be the next governor of Virginia, and that is Jennifer Carroll Foy. Um, and continuing to promote us on social media, on your digital platforms, that is always helpful because when a friend of yours see that you support us, then they'll check us out. And that is always extremely helpful. So all of these things are you know, the, the best use of time and talent to help our campaign and share our positive vision for Virginia and help us get elected.
1: I love it. And listen, I just got my tax refund, too. I'm, I'm, I'm going give you a little something. I, 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 I did my tax for the first time. I'm, I'm, I'm spending on a historic a campaign. Coins. Hey, man, listen, yeah. l- listen I need to spend <laughs> on something because it's going to be going really soon. All right, but outside of that, just, you know, just any final words just for the HBCU audience and, and any Virginia students from Norfolk and VSU, you know, or, 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 or Union that are watching. So do you have any final words for them? Yeah, and the
2: Norfolk State. I can't leave them oh, out. Oh, no, Norfolk no, State. No, no, no,
1: love Norfolk no, 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 State. Yeah. State. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Don't so have to say, you know, I love you. I love my HBCUs. I love my HBCU graduates. It's just something about you, just the difference in the way you walk, how you carry yourself, and just what you're out there doing and how we are just moving and shaking and changing the world. So I'm excited about this election. I'm excited uh, that we're on the cusp of making this happen. And it's HBCU graduates who are doing it. Ms. Kamala Harris to name just one I mean we are just out here so I need you all to definitely do your part and let's make sure we elevate our positive voices and let's you know help everybody get to where they need to go so please if you can vote for me vote for me if not talk to your friends family live in Virginia make sure they go vote they have a plan bring a friend and let's get this done on June 8th Jennifer Carroll Foy for Governor
1: I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. I got one last question because we're right on time. We we on perfect time right now. Are you going to come back to HBCU Pulse and, and 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 talk to us again?
2: You just let me know when and where.
1: Okay, I I, <laughs> I love we got we got it on record. I love to see it. We love to see it. But Ms, but Miss just thank you so much. Um, just once again, congratulations on everything that you're doing. Thank you once again for coming on, and we definitely wish you the best.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
1: I right, talk to you later. You.
2: Talk to you later. Yeah. Bye.
0: HBCU they know just who we are.
1: Post Radio Alright so that was Our conversation with Virginia Gubernatorial candidate uh, Ms. Jennifer Carol Foy June 8th is going down so make sure you Haven't already vote for her We need representation here The live is not over so if you Came from Ms. Jennifer Carol Foy I need for y'all to stay here Because we're going to talk about some politics So we have two political minds right here we have United and Tierra amazing interview amazing interview we love to see it man y'all, y'all asking the real questions man y'all asking the tough questions out here we love to see it so we we want to just dive into a couple of things real quick and really just have a conversation about you know the political spectrum of where we are you know um because i think it's important you know we have a vice president that's an hbc graduate and we have a president you know that is a democrat and, you know, we have, you know, a slight majority in the Senate and a majority in the House. So we want to have conversations about the importance of politics. Right. So I want to start with this because this is something that 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 just came out today. And I, and I was, you know, investigating it before we came on. So, you know, a slight majority in the Senate. I know you and I, we talked about this before. So Joe Mnuchin, who is a Democratic senator and he's very bipartisan. Right. He's he, he's all big on bipartisanship. And he did an article where he said he was not going to support the Voting Act and not because, oh, well, I would change this. I would change that just because it, it doesn't have the approval of Republicans. Right. And we, we heard what uh, Miss Voice said talking about bipartisanship and working with the other side. But I want to just bring this to the forefront, because for me, I just feel that that's crazy because you're, you're in power. Democrats have power. Republicans, when they have power, they don't play games, as we saw when they had the, the majority of the Senate, and the majority of House, and Donald Trump, whatever he was doing in the White House. So I want to start with you, Tierra. So, like, like, what do you think of that? Him pushing bipartisanship instead of supporting his party. What, what do you think about that?
3: I think you have to call a spade a spade. Um, you can't ignore what's going on around the country with all of these voting laws. We're closer to Jim Crow. Era than we've ever been in this century, and so I believe that you cannot sit in power with the power to push the pen on these different laws and sit and say I'm not going to support that. If you su- it's really I really hate partisanship in general because you're elected to represent people, you not represent a party. So it doesn't matter if the Republicans don't agree with it. What are the people that you're elected to represent saying about these things? The peop- the same people who have these rights to elect you are going to lose them if you do not pass this law. So it doesn't matter what you say, because you might not be back here as a Democrat if you don't continue to support what Democrats or what people, everyone. Voting is a American right, not a Democratic right, not a Republican right. So you cannot take that away just because one group of people doesn't agree with it.
1: And I think that like that's important what you said. And I want to just run down, um, you know, what. Uh, Senator Joe Manchin is deciding to go against, so he's going against the the People Act that was passed into that was passed in 2019, introduced in 2019, and this is addressing voter access, voter integrity, which is of course a big conversation, election security. That's a real big conversation, a real big conversation for the Republicans. Political spending, you know, and it's expanding voter registration. It's, it's stopping people from getting rolled off the voter rolls. So you know, I, I don't understand it because I, I don't understand this aspect of oh, we want to make sure that the other side is good. Well, they're never going to be good. They're they're still complaining, oh, Donald Trump really won. Like, they're not, they're not, like, 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 listen, we're playing basketball and and, and they're playing checkers at this point. Like, we're we're, we're playing two different games at this point. So what do you think about that, you know, from that same vantage point that this bill is addressing a lot of the issues that we're seeing in Georgia and a lot of different places? Like, Like, what do you feel about him just being so resistant to it just because of bipartisanship?
0: Absolutely. As we spoke on before, I think a large part of bipartisanship was introduced with the Biden-Kamala administration. So we saw um, Joe Biden say in his inaugural address that I will be your president regardless of your party. So I'm a president for Republicans. I'm a president for Democrats. So we see politicians kind of following that trend now. And it's so funny because I always try to bring it back to a meme. I saw a meme just before this interview and it said, we as Black people asking Biden to pass a bill for us to help us while he's passing bills for other people, right? Um, And we initially are the people who helped him get into office. So I think a lot of times politicians try to steer away from having a specific Black agenda. They try to make it a partisan agenda and have an agenda for everyone so i think moving forward with politics especially young politicians it's okay to have an agenda for specifically black people it's okay to specifically help the people who helped you get an office so i look forward to seeing that in the future and allowing politicians to be open with helping black people and specifically people who helped them get into office
1: i love it and then there's a comment talking about you know he's from West Virginia and it's a highly Republican, you know, just state. And also, you know, he it's democratic representation, essentially what I'm boiling it down to within that comment. But if he's not advocating for democratic stuff, why is he there? Like, like you just getting a paycheck, you just getting a position. It's a resume builder for you. Like, why are you there if you're not there to advance some type of agenda? Because sitting on the fence, like there, there's no, there's no purpose in that. And I think that one part of, the, of his article is very I- interesting. They try to point—he tried to point out a double standard. He tried to talk about the filibuster, about how oh, when Donald Trump and the Republicans were in the White House and had the Senate and the Congress, Democrats wanted to remove the filibuster. No, 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 no—they don't want to fight to keep the filibuster. Now they want to remove it. Yeah, because Donald Trump was in office. Yeah, <laughs> like, duh. Like I, I, I want—like with politics, I don't understand why we make it so. Oh, it's a moral issue is when you have someone that's a psychopath in office, yeah, we want to keep the thing that stops him and stops his party from exerting total control over everything. Like, that's the part I don't understand. You know what I'm saying? But we don't got time. We, we got we got to move on. Let's talk about Joe Biden, uh, President Joe Biden, and also just what's going on with his administration. So one thing I'll say, even in the point connecting, you know, Joe Manchin to the Biden-Harris administration, is that this is the reason why a lot of stuff isn't happening. So I see a lot of people on Twitter saying, oh, man. President Biden ain't doing nothing. He's just a, a tool of the oppressor, X, Y, Z. Well, if we're not politically knowledgeable on what's going on and we're not putting the right people in place, such as a Ms. Jennifer carroll Foy, such as the Stacey Abrams and different senators and representatives, we're not going to get things passed. I want to ask you, Tierra, so what would you rate President Biden's administration thus far?
3: Um, I think I'm going to give him a little bit of grace just because we are not far past the first 100 days. Um, we have four, three and a half more years to go. Um, I would say I would give him a six Mm. out of 10. Um, there's definitely some room for improvement. There's some areas that I feel like he's not speaking up enough on. Um, I would love to see vice president Kamala Harris out a little bit more. I know, I just know with vice presidents, they're kind of behind the scenes anyway. We never really saw Pence. I don't think we ever saw her Pence talk until the whole January 6th thing, but I'm just being greedy as a black woman. I want to see her. I want to see her doing things. I want to see her out more. I want to see more than just them hopping off a plane with a selfie pic. I want to see more of her in a direct power role. Um, So that's my tidbit with Vice President Kamala Harris. But as far as um, President Joe Biden, I think he needs to be a little bit more assertive with his executive power. And that's a lot of what um, his fellow Democrats are complaining about. You have this executive power that you campaigned for years for, and now you want to sit here and wait for the Republicans to agree for everything. It's not going to happen, especially, like I said with um, our last interview, that we're in the most polarized part of our American government history. We're not going to agree. It's not going to happen. They're still trying to figure out how to get Trump back in office. We're not going to pass what joe Biden wants to do with them we have to figure out a way to get around them and start filling out the things of his agenda that he promised us so i'm kind of shaky on how some of those things are going to come about um until he starts being a little bit more assertive with his power
1: right so i i'll give my my take on it i believe that i will give him an eight. I'm surprised you gave him a six. You look like you look like a college professor today. Especially so he failed the class. Okay, <laughs> oh he failed the test so far. Midterm, it's boom, you're opinion. done. I
3: can't give you a grade off of your opinion, but
1: <laughs> like I
3: need the facts to support. You.
1: Oh, I'm like boom, like listen, midterm, <laughs> listen, you be, do better, young man. Like at this point, but like how I look at it, you know, I would give him an eight. I think that you know just COVID relief and his push of the vaccines because I, I got my second dose. My arm is, is currently just feeling funny right now, but I'm not sick yet, or hopefully I don't get sick. But, I mean, I like, you know, just how he was really aggressive as far as the vaccine rollout and also just the aid, the COVID aid. And and I think that he's trying to bring back a level of class to the presidency that we lost and that we haven't seen since Barack, President Barack Obama. So I think that that that's important, you know? I think that we have to look at the elevation of the position and we have to look at the fact that uh, President Obama said this on John Stewart's show, The Daily Show, um, back in I think it was like around this his first turn. I was like twenty twelve. He was running, and he told John Stewart that politics is a marathon. You know, like it's it, it's not just one thing. It's not just oh, boom, I'm in. I'm gonna fix racism. I'm gonna fix everything. Like what I how I look at it as is okay. What we're trying to do here is that we're trying to make small changes so in in, in the future, long term changes can happen. So I think that you know we have to really give him some leeway, not because, oh, you know, Randall's protecting him, he's going in. No, it's the fact that we have to be patient. I think we right. want quick fixes to everything, but we have to get to a point where we're truly advocating for what we want and also putting folks in place that can actually help him. Because I'm not rocking with Mnuchin. But yeah. don't you feel
3: like, in a way, I know you said we want quick fixes to everything, but I feel like our want for quick fixes is validated because we've had politician and president after president who have promised things especially for the black community and we're still waiting for those things to happen. So I feel like now in this climate that we're in where a lot of social justice things are starting to change, we're starting to get more black people in our office, our expectations are high because now we have people in office that look like us. Now we have politicians who are more open to the Black agenda, we want those things to start happening. We want those promises to come to fruition. So I feel like, yes, of course, from a political science standpoint, I agree with you that we have to be patient. We still have three and a half more years with him. But from a citizen's point of view and a Black person's point of view, I need you to start doing the things you told me you're going to do. And I need that to start happening.
1: Well, that's true. And avoc- to me, advocating for that is important. But Politics still is a marathon. And I think what is the most important thing is that the president has fiscal power, he has executive power, but we got to get the governors in place. You have to get the mayors in place. We have to get the delegates in place. The congressmen in place. I think that we always go on. Okay, boom, we have this president in here. We got this black president. We got this Democrat president. It's not Donald Trump, but it's like you have. You have to get everything. You don't. You don't just put your shirt on and then walk out. You got to put your shirt on. You got to put your pants on. Your shoes on, and then you walk out. And then for black folks, you gotta make sure to fit right. You know what I'm saying? So it's like we gotta make sure we pay attention to detail because we're not just walking out with one thing. We can't just have um, President Joe Biden in the White House. And then the Republican Senate that's blocking everything he does. And you got Mitch McConnell that's saying, like, his sole goal is to stop President Joe Biden's agenda. Like, that's something where it's like, it's it's a longer-form process. Now, it's things that he should address. We're going to talk about it in one second. One of the biggest critiques I would have with him thus far. But at the same time, I think that we're leapfrogging. And I think that that's the thing that we can't do, especially... As we're controlling the scope of the conversation within our generation, as well as we're voters and we want people to stay on for the midterms. But let's talk about this really quickly. Right. So we have, you know, President Biden, one of the things he had promised is that he was going to, you know, do student loan forgiveness. And that's one thing that I won't give him a 10 or nothing like that, because, yeah, COVID relief is cool. But, man, Salome, he called my granddad because he was our co-signer. You know what I'm saying? I'm just salary made, like like public or private. I think it's private. But Joe Biden can do something about that too. Help me out, President Biden. But anyway, like I want, I want, I want everybody to get help because I need help. We all need help. So what do you think, just about just his his sort of neglect of student loan forgiveness? Because you had the Democrats in Congress, they were pushing, you know, to do a, at least 50k relief, but that hasn't happened, and it wasn't in his relief package. wasn't wasn't in the bill. So what do you think about what's going on thus far with him sort of neglecting what he was campaigning on, which was student loan forgiveness?
3: I wouldn't completely call it neglect. Um, I think Joe Biden's President Joe Biden's push for student loan forgiveness is the same as President Trump's building of the wall. I think we're making small progressions, but nothing's happened yet. Um, And that was the big The big campaign tool. I'm going to forgive student loan. I'm going to forgive forgive student loans. But I, you know, people still have student loans, so they're confused. But um, I think you have to look at some of the many progressions he is making, though.
1: So during this campaign, so Joe Biden, like you said, he did call for uh, 10,000 in federal student loan debt for every borrower. And then, you know, forgiving all the undergraduate student debt accrued by borrowers who attended public colleges or minority serving nonprofit colleges. That would affect Fort Valley, Tennessee State, VSU, you know, for for folks like us. And then expanding the existing public service loan forgiveness program by canceling $10,000 a year in student debt for every year a borrower works in a public sector or nonprofit job up to five years. So he addressed it within the campaign, but it was absent from the relief bill. And I think that even within the Congress, them saying fifty thousand them saying ten thousand, it's splitting hairs a bit. And 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 that, that's the problem I understand Where it's like, man, just give us five thousand, give us, give us something. You know what I'm saying? Cause like this is like listen, anything to help us get to that end. You know, because we, we knew that President Joe Biden wasn't gonna be Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders said he canceled everything. He said everything was gonna be free. We didn't know how we were gonna do it. But everything was gonna be free. But at the same time, it's like yeah. we know we know that's not that's not who President Biden is. But at the same time, if you, if you said all these different things, this is outlined in the platform, we want to see it. Now, one thing that I do think is interesting is that when it comes to college affordability, he's talking about making public colleges tuition free for students from households earning less than $125,000 a year and increasing Pell Grants. That's a lot of students, and I think that would affect HBCUs a lot, especially with us being reliant on Pell Grants and also just us being largely public institutions that are under that threshold of 125000 a year. So, you know, as far as this HBCU agenda, especially having someone like, you know, Vice President Kamala Harris, who's a Howard grad, how do you think he's been, you know, maneuvering with HBCUs? Um,
3: I think there's room to put more money into HBCUs before we start making platforms to take money out. Um, I do, I feel like the end of goal is college affordability. So let's start giving students more scholarships before we start. Why meet the problem at the end, when you could just give them more money to go to school to begin with? Invest more money into these programs, give HBCUs more funding, give HBCUs the funding that we're already owed, because we're looking at many HBCUs who are owed millions and millions of dollars in funding, mine being one of them, and I know we're going to talk about that later. But there's so many other things that you can do to aid HBCUs and make college affordability happen before you just completely take that money as
0: you will.
1: what do you really grade him? You know, just in gen- not just for one specific issue, but in general, what's your grade for him for this?
0: I- absolutely. Um, as Tiara said, I really wanted to see a lot of Vice President Harris and not just the selfie, but policies that they put in place. And I know we talked a lot in, in the beginning about um, the student loans issue that a lot of HBCU students wanted to see and the funding that HBCU, HBCU students wanted to see. And we didn't see that within day, the first 100 days, and we didn't see it now. Um, so I guess I'm looking for just progressive policies towards HBCUs. And Vice President Harris really looking out for her HBCU family and continuing, again, as we talked about in the last question, to serve the people who helped you get in office.
1: What we're looking at is we want a lot of advocacy. We want them to make things happen. And really what I'm saying is to tie it all in is that it's a marathon. You know what I'm saying? Like This is the end of the first quarter of the first 100 days. We have, we have to continue to push on and we have to make sure in the midterms that there's some sustainability You know, for him because the agenda, such as Joe Mnuchin, all right, because I'm, I'm gonna call him out today. Joe Manucci is just in in the way. If you if you try if you tried to go somewhere and then and then someone just in the line. Have you seen that video in Atlanta? Because Atlanta been wilding recently. You seen that video where they own the highway and they just are kissing? That's Joe Mnuchin and, and and the Republicans. Okay, that's him at this point. They just 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 sitting there just just loving the Republicans. Like Jesus Christ, could you, could could you move out the way? We're trying to get to success, sir. Kyle Golly. Anyway. So one thing that, that I, I want to touch on is I want to touch on qualified immunity. So with the George Floyd Policing Act and also what was a big topic uh, back, you know, when, when Derek Chauvin was convicted for the murder of George Floyd, we we're talking about qualified immunity. And, you know, Tierra, and I, you know, we spoke about it just you know, in different, you know, meetings of the minds that we were having, you know, around that time. So, Tierra, I want you to explain to us, you know, what qualified immunity is and why it's good or bad or why it needs to go. And in general, like, you know, what's the consensus on it?
3: So qualified immunity is one of the big things that um, Republi- sorry, Democrats are pushing for in the um, George Floyd Policing Act. So qualified immunity, immunity is just the alleviance of any crime or um, grievance or anything like that. So basically, if let's say, for example, with George Floyd, if his family wanted to sue, file a class action suit against um, Derek Chauvin, he has qualified immunity, he doesn't have, he won't be tried, he won't be able to be sued. Um, So, you know, we see time and time again that the families of these victims, they get no justice in criminal court. They get no justice for losing their family members. And these officers often walk, keep their jobs and going about their lives. So the least that we can do is allow those families to sue for the death of their loved ones. And as of right now, that's not possible. So eliminating qualified immunity will allow those families to pursue those cases in a civil court.
1: I, I want to move on because, you know, um, we're running sh- um, short on time. So I want to talk about this. So let's talk about, you know, just land grants and what's going on at Tennessee State, what's going on at a lot of various public HBCUs. I could say Fort Valley has had the issue that we're about to raise, but Tennessee State is about to be getting a whole lot of money because a whole lot of funny business has really been going on. All them HBC lawyers, all them AKA lawyers are going to make sure that Tennessee State get his coins. So what's really going on out here, Tia? What's, what's happening? You the student trustee? What's really going on out here?
3: They're playing us for our money, Randall. Like, so for all of those who don't know, Tennessee State University is one of two land-grant institutions. Land-grant institutions are those that are founded to promote and teach, um, Agricultural Sciences and Mechanic Arts. So that's where you get in the United States, those A&M universities, your Tennessee State Universities, your FAMUs, um, all of those universities who support those arts and those sciences. So with that, the, U, um, the United States government matches federal funding one-to-one. So that means if the federal government is giving Tennessee State $1,000 in funding, that's just a random number. Um, is giving us $1,000 in funding. The federal government matches the state's um, $1,000, so we get $2,000. Well, between Tennessee State University and University of Tennessee, which is the other land-grant institution, we have been receiving, up until the time President um, Glenda Glover has been in office, we were receiving less than that one-to-one match, while University of Tennessee was receiving four to five times their match. So while we're only getting 500 out of that thousand example number, they were getting five to six thousand dollars to the one thousand dollars they were supposed to get. Now, granted, that's on a smaller scale. We're looking at millions, half of a billion dollars right now. So you can just only imagine the the damage that has done to the advancements of our university. We are looking at think about it, all the things that HBCUs can improve on housing. Um, course curriculum expansion we're looking at retention and enrollment all of those things are being hindered and we're always complaining about our hbcus don't have this our hbcus don't have that we're owed half a billion dollars like there's there's only so much donating and fundraising that we can do to make up for half of a billion dollars that we're owed and it's ongoing and that is just an estimate there's so much more to be investigated with our situation um So now we have a team at Tennessee State University. It's made up of, of course, our president, our administration, our board of trustees, as well as the top um, senators and HBCU grads in um, Nashville and Tennessee. And also we've gotten like Reverend Al Sharpton on board. We've gotten other people on board. So we're looking to continue to fight through this um, executive legislative session for our coins. Um, right now in the process, we've only solidified a number, um, how those coins will be reallocated back to the university is still up for negotiation. But like I said, when you posted your first on post, I don't care how you do it. I want every penny, every dollar. It's not up for negotiation. Um, this could be the start of a movement for all of the HBCUs who are going through similar things. And just to show that, Our schools are still living under a separate but equal system that are still depriving us of everything that we deserve while we're putting a lot into this world. Think about it. HBCU grads. We just had one on the show. We have one that is the vice president of the United States. Show us some respect. Put some more money in our pockets. Give us what we're owed because we're putting a lot into this country that is priceless.
1: Right, and I gotta say this: y'all have Reverend Al Sharpton down there fighting for y'all. Y'all getting all that money because <laughs> he got the MSNBC show. You got that radio show he do from his office. Keeping it real with Al Sharpton, one to four. He he does so much Jimmy be Reverend Al Sharpton. I'm like man, like yeah. like like I like I, I know we can multitask if Reverend Al Sharpton does everything in the world because how I saw him, he was on live with you. the couple days later, he, like he's, he's over there, you know, with the George Floyd fan. I'm like. How, how does he get there? Like God, can he teleport? Like Jesus Christ on the cross, like, he, he's really good at what he does at this point. Like he, he's done this for a minute. So let's talk about this one last thing. Let, let's let's end in with this right here, and then I'm, I'm, I'm going to go to you, here just to sum it up about just you know just the interview and the importance of the interview with Miss Jennifer Carroll Foy, but. I got. We got to talk about this because Tierra brought this to my attention a few weeks ago. We got to talk about it. So this is why you go to HBCU. So you have, you know, a lot of amazing organizations such as Alpha Alpha Sorority Incorporated, which Tierra is a member of, started at Howard, right? So Bloomberg University just permanently eliminated its entire fraternity and sorority life program. So any legacies, anybody that is watching this, that's thinking about going to whatever university this is, I did not know this university existed. Okay, but at the same yeah. time, I, I, y'all don't need to go there. If y'all trying to be Greek, don't go there. I, t- I tell you where you don't need to go. Okay, so I like, give you a little bit of a free game from GDI. Don't go. Don't go there. All right. So I think it's crazy because I, I just want to know how they came to this. Like, yeah, So is it was, it was it was it a hazing incident? Was it like you know just like just members not joining? Like what's what's going on? Like why would they do this? Well, looking into
3: the incident, they sent a two sentence email to their students, basically said that it was up to the discretion of the university administration, and then they will be discontinuing all of their fraternity sorority life. That was it. No warning, no explanations, no voting, no nothing. They just decided that they're done with it. Um, You know, they had been interviewed and asked questions. They said that it had nothing to do with the um, former hazing situation that they had to deal with they said it had nothing to do with that um, they really had no answer that was the weird part about it and that's why I sent it to you I was like I can understand maybe if somebody died or they had like an extensive amount of hazing allegations but you literally had no explanations for this and I feel like for students who spend out a lot of money to join these organizations who have a lot of pride and legacy in these organizations whether they're D9 organizations, or even just like predominantly white sororities and fraternities, people put a lot of love and effort into these organizations. And just for you to rip that away was just the highlight of most people's college experience. Why? That doesn't make sense to me. And it was so absurd. And it was just interesting. I could not imagine my HBCU doing that. I would, I feel like there would be a riot.
1: Well, well. first and foremost, it wouldn't happen at Tennessee State. Dr. Glover's down there. Then it's the HBCU. That's oh, not going to happen. Oh,
3: well,
1: not for Alpha, alpha. Like, I don't know about the rest of Oh, it. my <laughs> gosh. <So laughs> this, this is a white school. This is, this is a PWI. So let, let's look at, you know, the fraternities that, you know, they suspended. And it wasn't any D9 fraternities. You had Sigma, Iom, 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 Iota Omega, Chi, um, Psi Theta Pi, Kappa Delta Rho, and Lambda Chi Alpha. So these are you know, white, you know, fraternities. These are UFO fraternities, right, uh, and sororities. Okay. So as far as the fraternities that they did have, they had Alpha Sigma. So they had Alpha Sigma Pi. They had Beta Sigma Delta, Delta Pi. They had Kappa Alpha Psi. You know, that's D9, Phi Beta Sigma. That's D9. They had Phi, Phi Lambda Phi, Pi Lambda Phi, Tau Kappa Epsilon, and Zeta Psi. So only two D9 organizations. For So for the sororities, you had Alpha Sigma Alpha Psi, Psi Sigma Rho, Delta Phi Epsilon, Delta Sigma Theta, so they had the deltas on the yard. Mu Sigma Epsilon, Phi Yota Chi, Phi sigma, sigma Sigma, Sigma Sigma Sigma. That's a lot of Sigmas. So, like, that, like they, they only had three black organizations. I want to know how, you know, just the national organizations feel about this. You know, I want to know how the black students feel. Because this is why we say that our experience is so important at HBCUs, because like we were saying, This wouldn't happen at an HBCU, because at the very least, it would be protocol that would happen. It would be different conversations that are happening. Go ahead.
3: Yeah, and it definitely goes back to the conversation that a lot of the Greek um, world has been talking about protecting black spaces. Hmm. Even if you don't go to a black HBCU or a predominantly black institution, That's why we have these organizations, so we can have a space to network with each other, to confide in each other, to learn from each other, and protect each other. And now Bloomberg, I'm pretty sure Bloomberg is in the middle of nowhere in a white institution. So now you've completely ripped those black students, which is what I care about, of their protected space. And, you know, just going into Greek life and just into the business of everything, there's so much more to that. Just eliminating an entire chapter, so I'm, I'm like really interested to see how that would play out on the business side of everything. But um I'm just like I said, more worried about the the black spaces that have been eliminated on that campus. So
1: okay, so I, I want to fact check you as far as it, it's in the middle of nowhere. So Bloomberg University is in Bloomberg. Bloomsburg, excuse me, Bloomsburg University is in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania. They have seven thousand students, but unless I'm looking at it wrong, unless this is the wrong uni- young university, wrong town, they they have like a thousand people living there. Well, no, I'm sorry, seventeen thousand eight hundred and fifteen. So you only ten thousand off from the student population. That's a college town, if I've ever seen it. That's definitely in the middle of nowhere. like folks yeah. in Philadelphia is not going to no Bloomsburg. They're going to Lincoln University of Pennsylvania at Cheney university. They, yeah. they black folks ain't going there. Okay, so I know folks. Well, that,
3: obviously some did. We had three D nine organizations on campus.
1: And and yeah, but I, clearly now they don't need to go at this point. <laughs> like it's like they don't. They're not respecting our spaces and what we're doing. So now they don't need to go because clearly, like what, like why would you go now? Because you don't have that. And I, I would love to see what the campus morale is. Like I would love just to search the hashtag. And we'll just see what's going on. Because I think that this had to have drawn some iron. If it didn't, yeah. that shows that it has to be either a, a low black population or, they, or, or they're or not rocking like us. You know what I'm saying? That's how I look at it. Yeah. Is that because if they're not upset at that, you know, they're in the second place. You know what I'm saying? Like, you don't got to be Greek to be upset at that. You know what I'm saying? Like, so I so, need to flash a light in their face. Like, this lightning that's, that's going on outside of my house. I need to get off live before I get struck by lightning. And we go viral. Anyway, anyway. So, Yanaya, so let, 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 let's button this up, right? So, we, we spoke with Miss Jennifer Carroll Foy. Uh, she's a Virginia State University alum. And she's running to be uh, governor of Virginia. So, you are a current VSU student. You're um, a future politician. So what does this moment mean to you to be able to interview her and also just her candidacy? What does it mean to you?
0: Absolutely. It means everything to me. Similar to when we spoke um, in January about Vice President Kamala Harris, to have someone in a position where I aspire to be who looks like me, who speaks like me, and specifically who went to an institution that I went to means the world. It shows that it can be done. And I really think Delegate Foy and Vice President Harris for making those spaces and clearing that paveway for young women like myself and Tiara who aspire to get into politics and showing that it can be done and that Black women are here to stay. And again, that we are here to make our presence known If there's no table for us. Similar to Delegate Foy, we'll make a table ourselves. So I am so grateful to her and for you for allowing us to have this interview and allowing us to have this space to actually speak and make it known that black women are a power force and we are about to break grounds in politics.
1: Let's go on and get out of here. So, Tierra, tell everybody where they can find you.
0: Thank you. So
3: you can follow me at T Thomas or S's two underscore.
1: (laughs) I love it. I love it. So, Yanaya, where can we find you on social media?
0: Absolutely. You can find me on my this page, my nonprofit page, HBC Youth. And you can also find me on my personal page, Yanaya.campbell on Instagram. Tap, 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 in. You're listening to Post Radio with Randall and Shelby, the heart of the culture.
1: All right, all right, all right. That is it for us. Thank everyone so much for tuning in. Uh this was definitely a special moment. Um, this was in a historic moment, no matter what the outcome is. But we expect for the outcome for uh, Miss Foy to be amazing. Uh, she's going for uh, the primary election, so we're gonna uh, see what's happening. June June the eighth is when you know things go down, and we're looking at you know to see what uh, what happens with things you know moving forward. But uh, one thing I want Pulse Media to be, you know, HBC Pulse, the Queen series, and also Pulse Radio, is I want us to be a political force. I don't want us to be just a repost page. I don't want us to just look at probates and all these different things. We want to be the duality of millennial life. We want to have have that duality, but we want to be taken seriously. Like on my wish list, I want to interview Senator Raphael Wannock, have Tierra and Aniyah interview Senator Raphael Wannock, Senator John Ossoff, uh, Ms. Keisha Lance Bottoms that, you know, is deciding not to run for a second term for mayor, uh, Ms. Stacey Abrams that we're looking to have her run for governor against Brian Kemp to get that win back. So we want for HBCU Pulse specifically, but also every branch of our Pulse media brands to really advocate for the students that we serve, but also not just HBCU students, we want to advocate for folks in our age range and also for future politicians and future leaders, such as Tierra, such as Yanaya. So I just appreciate everybody for tuning in. We had an amazing crowd on Instagram Live for HBCU Pulse and we have a lot more amazing things that are happening that I cannot wait uh, to discuss with you guys moving forward. But outside of that, that is it for us. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to Pulse Radio, this special edition with Ms. Jennifer Carroll-Foy, Tierra Thomas, as well as Janiah Campbell. And as always, we'll see you on the other side.
2: HBCUs are
0: more than a trend.
1: We're forever a part of the culture. We
0: can can show show you you better better than we we can can tell tell you. A Queen Series and HBCU Pulse has you on lock. From royal court to Greek life, sports and campaigns to graduation. We are the The number number one outlet for HBCU HBCU students. Make sure to tap in and learn more at hbcupulse.com.